Well, we are continuing our overview of the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and today we're going to finish the Old Testament. Um, We're going to think briefly about the message of the prophets. Um, So, in order to catch us up real quick before I pray and we dive into um, the New Covenant, I I just want to remind you quickly of of where we are, where we've been. Um, That slide, I put it in the wrong place. Here we go. Uh, We've said that we're following this pattern of the kingdom, God's people and God's place, under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing, and that all started with Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. The garden, we said, was meant to be the prototype of the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, where he dwelled with his people. And so they lived under the rule of his word and enjoyed uh, being in God's community and on God's mission together. But they sinned, and so then God's people were no one. They were banished from God's place, the garden. And uh, because they lived in disobedience to his rule, disobedience to his word, they were under his curse. But God was not finished. Uh, He still was on his plan A to have this community uh, with him on his mission. And so he promised Abraham that his descendants would be his people, um, that the promised land would be the place where they would live. Ultimately, that promise would extend beyond the boundaries of the promised land to include all of creation, but we're not there yet. Um, God's rule and blessing, uh, God would bless Israel so that Israel would bless the nations. And then, for three weeks, we've just finished looking at how all of this kingdom came partially to be fulfilled in the nation of Israel under uh, her kings. And so God's people in this case were the Israelites. God's place was the land of Canaan, but more specifically the city of Jerusalem, even more specifically the temple, even more specifically the Holy of Holies, um, which we said was cube-shaped. And I, I didn't tell you this last time that in uh, Revelation, when the new city, Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, comes down, um, it's descri- the dimensions are described as a cube. And the whole world, all of creation, will be the Holy of Holies, where we will dwell in God's presence um, forever with him together. And uh, the partial kingdom was, uh, they had the law of God given by Moses, and the king ruled over them uh, in God's, uh, as God's steward. And they experienced, all the way through David and into Solomon's reign, lots of blessing. But then we saw that that began to fall apart. And so this morning, we're going to talk about uh, the prophesied kingdom because there is something that uh, is is getting in the way of this uh, kingdom of God coming to its full fruition. And the prophets are going to diagnose and predict and prophesy uh, the solution that God has. And, and that will be that God's people will be a new Israel that will include the nations uh, was their original intent and they had become focused on themselves. 
Um, God's place will be a new temple, which will be the new creation. And God will rule and we will be blessed under his rule, uh, under a new covenant with a new king, King Jesus. So this morning what we're going to do is focus on that new covenant. That's the passages we're going to look at together. So that being said, let me pray and we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for what you have been teaching us along the way as you've given us this big picture overview of your story. Um, We ask now that your spirit would come and help us to understand this part of the story, uh, this part that is is so encouraging and um, I'm so excited about being able to share this with your people this morning. I pray that you would take your word and... um, Just ah, encourage your people through it, God. Um, And and Father, if there are those here this morning who don't know you, who don't know Jesus, um, would you call them uh, to yourself through these words this morning uh, as we think together about the promises, the blessings of the new covenant that comes through Jesus. So do that in us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so yes, uh, it, it's been a mess. The kingdom is, is not what it seemed to be. And uh, we're going to talk about what God did to solve that problem. But this week as I was thinking about this, um, I was remembering a couple of things that made me think about what... Why do we want to be new? We're talking about the new covenant. There's all these new words in this, in this part of the story. A new Israel, new temple, new creation, new covenant, a new king. And as I was thinking about our desire for not just new things, but to be new people, I was reminded of, of something that I heard about, and I'm no expert on these kinds of things, but I remember hearing this phrase, the transformation economy. How many of you have heard that phrase, transformation economy? So, I contacted our resident professor of business, <laughs> Philip, who's back there, and don't, don't look at him, he'll be embarrassed. Um, and I said, tell me about this transformation economy I've heard about. And so, he emailed me back, and this is just brilliant, as you would expect from a professor um, let me, I want to read some of what he said because he describes it so well. Um, he said that uh, the transformation economy is how consumers increasingly want more than just a product or service when they make a purchase. Uh, the transformation economy idea is that consumers have moved beyond product and service and even beyond the next phase, which was the experience economy, wanting an experience, Now they want an experience that transforms them and or improves them in some way. And if you think about what's out there, you can can kind of see this. Then I read on a website, someone said this, in the transformation economy, consumers are seeking more than experience, merely. They crave something authentic and meaningful. Some call it the soul of business, to which they can connect on a most personal level 
and in doing so, undergo an actual sense of transformation. Consumers are desperate to connect with themselves. Brands that can offer them a meaningful route to that soulful luxury will be the ones that stay ahead of the game. So, I, you know, I was trying to think of different examples of this. I think uh, maybe the CrossFit craze or the whole fitness craze uh, is, is something because it's, there's a sense in which it's a service that helps transform you into what you want to be. Heck, even the Army used to use this whole transformation uh, marketing thing. Be all that you can be. You can do it in the Army or whatever. Um, uh, I was walking through uh, a department store in a Dallas mall several years ago, and as I was walking past the women's fashion department, I saw these, these big signs hanging from the ceiling that said, be transformed. And I looked around and I was like, what is going to transform us here? Dresses, shoes. I thought, that's interesting. But that's that whole concept that um, businesses are trying to tap into what they know we want. We want to be transformed. We want to be different. Um, and then Philip said, but it's Beyond that, maybe a, a related um, phenomenon he is called ethical or conscious consumerism. He said there's a growing segment of consumers that want to make purchases that not only satisfy their desire for a particular product or service, but that also do good or right wrongs at the same time. Ethical or conscious consumerism. He said, for example, instead of just buying a chocolate bar, they want to buy a chocolate bar that gives a percentage of profits to farmers in the developing world, uh, which is naturally sourced and has a wrapper that is biodegradable, etc. Um, and, and he commented that it's interesting that that kind of product that doesn't just satisfy what I need but also helps others is, is something that believers and non-believers alike want. Um, he said, we're not just content with buying something. Even in our purchases, we want to express this innate desire to better ourselves and maybe even better or renew the world around us. And that's just, that's what I'm trying to get at. What is it? We have this innate sense in us that we need to be transformed. We want to be renewed. We want to be renovated. Or the world needs to be transformed or renovated. We, that's very clear this week. Um, but then even one of my favorites from our beloved state of Texas, Chip and Joanna. Chip and Joanna, right? Um, you, you all know the show where they renovate these homes. Well, their whole purpose in doing that and starting their um, construction business and remodeling business was, they said, their motto was making Waco beautiful one home at a time. Um, there's this longing for renewal, for renovation to take place. And when I think of the new covenant, the promise of what God is doing and this part of the story with his people, God is, is answering that longing we have. The reason we have that longing is because we need to be transformed. We need to be renovated. We need to be renewed. 
were broken. And so God has come in the prophets to point out that his house is in desperate need of renovation. The household of God is in serious shape. And so he has, as he exiled Adam and Eve out of the garden, he has exiled Israel out of the land, and they're living uh, elsewhere. And we saw, um, as Amber read, this is what happened. Not only did they profane God's name in Israel, in their own land, in God's place, it says, God says in Ezekiel 36, 20, but when they came to the nations... Wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, and that, people, and that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. These are God's people. So you would expect, if, if I were God, I would say, okay, I'm done with you people. I'm done with all humans, wiping you out, and we're just starting from scratch. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Or, or at least even go choose another nation. But he says, uh, he says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations. If it were me vindicating my great name, I'd be wiping those people out who profaned it. But instead, God says, and the nations will know that I'm the Lord when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Even then I would think, yeah, through you, because I'm going to wipe you out and everybody's going to see this is what happens when you profane God's holy name. But that's not what he does. That's not what he does. What does he do? He makes them new. And so that's what I want us to, to focus on this morning. I, I'm so excited about that. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole world. Don't worry, that doesn't mean we'll be here all day. But I, I'm going to run through this. Um, but this is so good. This is so helpful, so rich. Look, look what he promises first. He says, in Ezekiel 36, 24, he's going to make them a new people. He says, I'm going to take you back from the nations where I've scattered you. I'm going to gather you from all the countries, and I am going to bring you into your land. I'm not through with you yet. I'm going to gather you. And now here, uh, millennia later, we are a representation of those people, Abraham's descendants by faith, that God has gathered together. God continues to gather assemblies of his people together um, so that he can vindicate his holiness through us. How's it? But there's a problem. If you're going to build a house, you, you need some good bricks. Any contractor will tell you your house is only good as the materials you're going to use. And So these are messed up people God's gathering together. These are broken folks. He's going to have to do something with his building blocks in order to build a building uh, that lasts. And so he says these next four things are what he's going to do. First, he's going to give them a new purity. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean 
from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Uh, he's got to clean them up. He's got to purify them. And this cleaning is going to require some demolition, which was Chip's favorite part of the thing. But um, it's going to require moving out the old ways of thinking and feeling and living, demolishing the old loves, the old idols. Uh, that all has to be smashed if we're going to be made the new people. The first thing that God must give us if we're going to live as his people who vindicate his holy name is purity. The great uh, Puritan pastor Walter Marshall put it this way. He said, you have to be totally assured that you are reconciled to God and accepted by him. You have to be absolutely sure that the chasm sin has caused between you and God has been completely filled and that you are now totally under his love and favor. You have to know that he has gathered you in as his new people and that he has done what it's going to take to purify you. And we know that this promise of the new covenant was fulfilled in Jesus and by giving us the Holy Spirit. Um, we just read in uh, Hebrews that um, it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Paul talks about how the Spirit has washed us. We were all sinners who don't deserve to be in the kingdom of God, Paul said. But we have been washed. We have been sanctified or holified through Christ and his blood. My question for you is, do you not long to be clean? Don't you want to be pure? I bet each and every one of us, if we sat and fought through our stories, there are stains on your hearts, stains on my heart. Some that others have put there, some many that I've put on my own heart. I just want to be clean. And there, there are stains that others may be, not be able to see, but I can see in my own heart. Isn't that something you long for, to be pure, to be clean? You can have it. In Christ, you can have it. I love two lines from hymns hit me this week as I thought about this. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And then another line from another hymn that says, wash me, Savior, or I die. Friends, I don't care how impure you've been. The promise of Jesus in the new covenant because of his blood is that you can be clean. And part of his cleansing will include some demolition. He wants to remove the old idols, remove the old loves. But he's also promised us a new passion. Um, I will give you a new heart, he says, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
part of the problem with God's people is that they had hearts that were, here, here, here were ways that other prophets described their hearts. Desperately wicked, diamond hard, and determined to do evil. Well, if God's going to build his house, he's going to have to do something about those hard hearts. They were hearts of stone, he says in Ezekiel. And so God says, no, we're going to do a little heart transplant. I'm going to take away the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that's a soft, tender heart that responds to me when I say, love me. It responds to me, God says, when I say, love people. We need a new passion. Our passion is for ourselves. We have me-first passions. And God says, I need to give you a new heart that has a God and others first passion. And Walter Marshall says this. He says, your heart has to be freely motivated to obey God's law. You must have a total inward inclination to want to obey God and to avoid sin. And so through the gospel, through Jesus, we get that heart transplant. God replaces our me-first hearts and gives us the you-first heart of his son. That's a promise of the new covenant. The next promise of the new covenant is that we get a new power. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Remember, he gave them the law. And the law summed up is, love God with all you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. We have no power to do that. And that's what the history of Israel proved time and time again. You don't have the power to do this. God says. And so, the promise is, and this is an incredible promise, I can't, I can't convince you enough with my own words how incredible this promise is, that God says, I know you don't have the power to love me and to love others, so I'm going to put me in you and cause you to walk in my rules and statutes. I'm going to put a power source in you that you didn't have before Walter Marshall again says, you have to be totally assured that you have sufficient strength both to will and to do what God calls you to do. God wants you to know that you have the power from him to live a holy life. I ask you, friends, are you like me? Do you have trouble uh, loving God and loving your neighbors and the nations and the next generation? I've learned a few things about myself and my love for God and others, or lack of it. Most of the time, I just don't have the heart for loving God and love others, loving people. It's just, most of the time, it's not what's on my radar. <laughs> loving Jimmy is what's on my radar. Thank you very much. And I will let God and others help me do that. Or, if I find in myself that God is giving me strength to love God and others, I can't sustain it. It seems like, oh, I'll do well for a while, loving God and loving others, but I run out of steam. Or I try to do those things for my own glory. I turn a you-first God, you-first people thing into a me-first 
thing. I, I will do what looks like loving God and loving others, but it's really about loving me. So I need, if that's me and that's you, then we need the power of God's Spirit to come and to cause us, as he promised, to walk in love for God and love for others. And through Jesus, we get his Spirit in us. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, of the me first heart. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do, the holy things you want to do, loving God and loving others. I have the Spirit of God in me, and it's at war against my me-first heart. And I think what Paul is encouraging us to do is to say, look, if the Spirit of God lives in me, and he wants to cause me to love God and love others, but my me-first heart is fighting against that, I need to switch sides here. I need to get on the side of the one who is in me to cause me to do what God has made me to do. So whatever that looks like for you, I want to encourage you, when you're fighting against your lack of love for God, you're fighting against your lack of love for people, first of all, if you're fighting, that's a good sign that the Spirit is in you. If you don't care, then that's, that's another problem. But if you're, if you're wanting to fight against not loving God and a fight against not loving people, get on the Spirit's side. Remember that God lives in you to cause you, to give you power. And so when you're saying, Lord, I just don't have any love for you. I don't, I don't feel it. I don't want to be at worship. I don't want to read your word. I don't want to talk to you, I don't, then say, but your spirit lives in me. Stir my heart to love you, God. And when it's loving your neighbor, um, which people are hard to love, right? (laughs) When you're struggling with, God, I don't love this person, or I don't want to serve, then say, but wait, you put your spirit in me. Stir your spirit in me to love this person, to forgive this person, to move toward this person, to serve this person. The spirit is in you fighting. Get on his side. And then, finally, we're promised a new partnership. God says, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Look, that day of the new creation is coming where we will forever dwell with God and he with us. But right now, God dwells in us in the places he's put us. And we have to remember that he's promised this new partnership with us. We we dwell together with God in the place he puts us. We partner with God in the family business. What's his family business? His family business is to renew all things. And he's inviting us to share in his deep gladness, his joy, his delight in renewing people and places and things.
Jesus came and said to the disciples just before he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, and he said, All authority is in heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. As you are going, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus has invited us into partnership with him to, as we're going into the various spheres of life that he's given us to help him make disciples out of people. <laughs> to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is, help them to become identified with the community of who God is. The community of God's people. And then to teach them to do all that he's commanded. Not just know it, but to act in partnership with him. To love him and to love others in the places he's put them with the resources he's given them. We are to, and he says, as you're doing all that, I'm with you. We're doing this together. We're making disciples together. We're in partnership. The late Jack Miller said this. He said, it's a sin to be bored and boring. Let's get our eyes off ourselves. We are in partnership with our Father for the gathering of the nations and the blessing of the world. We are in partnership with our Father for the gathering of the nations and the blessing of the world. If I really believe that, it would change the way I see my trips to Pruitt's. It would change the way I see my trips down the mountain to wherever God's sending me. That I'm in partnership with Him for the gathering of the nations and the blessing of the world. So I have to ask myself, do I act like I'm out here on my own? Do we as a church act like we're up here on the mountain on our own? In our own little corner of the kingdom of God? Or do we recognize that we're in partnership with King Jesus and one another on this mission? And what would that look like if, if I really believed, if we really believed that we were in partnership with King Jesus to renew all things, starting with us? I would pray. The Lord taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And friends, I must not believe I'm in partnership with God because I don't pray that much about that th these things. But if I believed I was in partnership with God, I would be talking to him about what we're doing together. We would be talking with him about what we're doing together. This is such good news that he has promised to make us a new people with a new purity, a new passion for him and for others, a new power 
to love Him and to love others. All because we're in a new partnership with Him. But He's not done there with this passage. He, he then even gives some promise again to back this up. He, he guarantees that this is going to happen uh, two ways. First, his guarantee that he's going to do these things is backed by his own concern for his own glory. Here's, here's what I mean. Listen to what he said. He said, not for your sake will I do this, Israel. I'm doing this for the sake of my holy name. And you think, well, that's, that's weird. Why wouldn't he do it for our sake? Why, why doing it for his holy name? Because his concern for glory is the guarantee that he will do what is good for us in the world. His promise to make us new is backed by his own concern for his own glory. God will not give his glory to another. He will not let it be diminished. And so, he will do this because it will give him glory. He will make you new because it will give him glory. So if you're ever wondering if God's going to transform you and make you new, is he going to stick to this program? He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus because it's about his glory that's at stake here. And then secondly, um, his concern for his glory guarantees we get good. Because he says, when through you I vindicate my holiness before the eyes of the world. It's going to happen through us. It's for his glory, but it's for our good. We who have trashed his glory will become his trophy. Because he's concerned about his glory being known and seen in the world. Here's the final thought. Chapter 36 is followed by Ezekiel 37. You might remember that's the story of the Valley of Dry Bones. God told Ezekiel, look into this valley. And all he saw were bones. They were dry. And they were all disconnected. That's about as dead as dead can be right there. And God told Ezekiel, look at those bones and then preach to them, he said. Prophesy, speak to them and say, live. And so he did and the wind, the spirit came and all the bones began, began to rattle and connect together and then sinews and tendons and flesh and muscle and skin eventually came up on all the, uh, the bones, all the skeletons, and there before him stood a great army. And God was giving him a vision of what the new covenant promises that he had just said in chapter 36. This is what I'm doing. I'm building my people into a great army. But what that story tells us, friends, is that we don't just simply need renovation. We need resurrection. So I want to 
urge you as you seek for God to renovate and restore you, remember this quote. I don't know who said it. Remember this. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. You and I have to come to God not as people who just need to be fixed, but people who absolutely need to be resurrected. We are dead. That was the problem with God's people. That's what he was doing in this part of the story was to say, look, all of this mess over centuries of history in my people, the main point is your sin has made you a mess. Chip and Joanna could take what was there and renovate it and make it look pretty. God's saying, no, with you people, I have to wipe out the house, the foundation, and nuke the earth and start from scratch and resurrect you from the dead. And that's the promise of the gospel, that Jesus came as the new king to enact a new covenant. And so when he said... This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for many. Jesus was harking back to these promises. And so this is what I want you to do from now on, Mountain Fellowship. Whenever we drink this cup, and you, whenever you hear me or any pastor up here say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, know that Jesus shed his blood so that you could be new, so that you could be resurrected, so that you could be pure, so that your heart could beat with tenderness toward God and others, so that his spirit could live in you and empower you to love God and love others in the place he's put you, so that you could be in a new partnership with the one who made you and loves you so much that he didn't trash you, but he said, I want to make you a trophy to my glory. That's what this little cup means. What Jesus said it means. So, Father, we come and we're going to drink this cup in a minute. And I pray, I pray, God, that every time we do from now on as a family, that we would remember that this cup is a promise that because of Jesus, you're making us new and you're sending us out to gather in the rest of your children whom you are making new so that we can join you in your mission to renew all things. It's so good. It's so good. Thank you for this promise. And now we ask that you would set aside this cup and this bread from their normal everyday use and let them be for us a sign, a picture, and also a seal, a guarantee of the promise that if we trust you, this is what you'll do. You'll transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.